Hello and welcome to Additive Insight, your source for news, interviews and comment on the latest 3D printing and additive manufacturing intelligence brought to you by the TST content team. I'm TST Head of Content, Laura Griffiths, and I'm joined by Senior Content Producer, Sam Davis. Hello, Sam. Hi, Laura. Long time no speak. <laughs> we are back with part two of our end of the year podcast. But if you couldn't tell from Sam's little uh, little nod there, we've just finished recording the first five minutes ago. So um, here we go. Uh, we are going to run through the months July to December today, talking about the biggest 3D printing news stories uh, from the year. So let's just get into it, shall we? Yeah, let's do it. Their first news story is Ascentium, which added DLP in the first of a number of expansions to its capabilities, which were announced uh, throughout the rest of this year. So, Sam, you covered this story on the site uh, back in July. Yeah, so the, the motivation for this move is basically, as Ascentium have, have been talking about for a few years now, um, that the kind of the key opportunities they see of AM is, is in tool and jigs and fixtures. And while it's extrusion-based technology, uh, can cater for a lot in that kind of application area. It, it obviously isn't the most suited technology for delivering the best surface finishes. Now, I spoke to Blake recently, and his general attitude to that is don't care because it does a lot of other good stuff um, mm-hmm. and even cares less now because if there is an instance where surface finish is required because of their acquisition of Collider, they've got that covered too. So Ascentium can now bring in the... Collider programmable programmable tooling technology, sorry, which prints thin dissolvable photopolymer shells, which are injected with um, plastic casting materials and then cured through a chemical process. And with this technology, users are able to utilize a, a range of high performance thermoset polymers, so polyurethanes, silicones, epoxies, mm-hmm. polyesters, so on, while also taking advantage of the kind of design speed and, and flexibility of 3D printing. So yeah, Ascension with the launch of a couple of new uh, extrusion machines this year as well with kind of dual extrusion capabilities plus Collider and their resin-based technology. Um, they feel like they're, you know, they've kind of padded out their polymer portfolio. They've they've got all bases covered. And, you know, later in the year, they, they go on to announce some, some more stuff on not to do with polymer. But, um, yeah, they're, they're feeling pretty confident with with the extrusion technology they've built over the last few years and, and now the, the the resin one they've acquired this year. Mm-hmm. And yes, another company set to become publicly listed yeah. via another merger too. So continuing that trend once again. Mm-hmm. And also this month, uh, the UK welcomed the launch of its first digital manufacturing centre. TCT was fortunate enough to get a very first look inside the DMC, which was set up by KW Special Projects founder, Kieran Salter, to be this real hub of digital manufacturing technology. So additive manufacturing, of course, but then other digital technologies as well. It is around Silverstone Technology Park. It's home to a number of 3D printing and digital manufacturing technologies, including systems from RPS, Dimension, which extended its partnership back at TC360 in September and became one of the first places in the UK to um, to house Dimension's new um, second generation uh, post-processing equipment. Um, and they've also um, introduced new machines from uh, Renishaw as well, uh, Renishaw's Renam 500 Flex. They're one of the, the tester sites for that that new version of its machine. The idea is to, I guess, wave the flag for, for British manufacturing, really, and, and, and show what our digital capabilities are. You know, um, companies, small companies, medium companies, large companies um, can come here, really just learn about um, where this technology can be applied, whether it is smaller things 
like additive manufacturing on the production line and things like jigs and fixtures or helping to redesign um, parts for additive manufacturing and how you can make um, parts that you're currently using, how you can make them better. And then also with other capabilities like the casting side of things and the finishing equipment and um, how that whole workflow works together and how additive manufacturing really fits into that. There is, of course, a big educational side of this, not only for those companies too, but the intent is also for the facility to be used and to educate younger generations about digital technologies and careers in digital technologies. Um, just touching on TCT 360, which we'll talk about a bit later on, um, the DMC was there with kind of um, a bit of a showcase of the the, um, the, the journey really that, that people go through when they enter into the DMC from learning about the software side and really that application discovery and then um, how to apply that to the machines and, and, and how to finish those parts. And so it's a really exciting place for the UK to have. Um, I can't wait for us to go and finally visit next year. They were, of course, going to have this huge launch event. They did have a launch, but um, TCT was unfortunately unable to go because we weren't traveling at the time. Um, but I'm really looking forward to getting a look inside that facility uh, next year. And I'm sure by the time we get to go there, they'll have installed um, many more additive manufacturing systems and various other bits of technology as well, because they do really have huge ambitions for this. I, I remember when I spoke to Kieran in the first place, he was talking about how they, the UK hub could be used as this, you know, like um, it's kind of like a jumping off point, really, you know, to, as I say, really fly the flag for British engineering. Um, but then he said, you know, there's nothing to stop us having a, a DMC hub in space to, to encourage um, a manuf digital manufacturing um, off planet. So pretty exciting ambitions. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to have a look inside. Yeah, I feel like we'll be fighting to go and have a look at that. <laughs> I feel like you've probably got dibs on it first, but it's really convenient for us i guess to have that um i don't know how far away is it two and a half hours down the road maybe yeah um from archester office so it kind of similar with, with the mtc just nice to have that mm -hmm. place we can go to from a purely from a selfish content perspective and <laughs> and pick some things up and um and yeah so it'll be it'll be yeah it'll be great to go and see that in you know in person rather than over a um you know whatever you're using we're using zoom i don't know it was it was a typical zoom fake through the doors <laughs> yeah i feel like yeah we're all zoomed out maybe looking forward to seeing that so moving on to August now, and I'm really desperately trying not to fill this podcast with desktop metal acquisitions or just acquisitions in general, but it just so happens that this was a huge year for them and, of course, a huge year for acquisitions in general. Um, on the last episode, uh, we spoke about the acquisition of Envision Tech, and in this month, they acquired Bindajet Pioneer X1, which I actually don't know which one was more shocking, to be honest. I feel like you and I may have joked about this at some point before it actually happened. Mm. Yeah, they acquired X1, who are, of course, a huge name in metal, Bindajet 3D printing, and also 3D printing with sand as well. Yeah, they're now all within the same fold, and um, this means that Desktop Metal has this huge Bindajet capacity, and it is something that we've talked about so many times now about being the year of Bindajet. This really kind of came full circle, really, and, and kind of solidified that vision for the entire year that John Hartner had been talking about all the way back in January. I was thinking about that when I was doing the, the roundup that will, well, by the time this podcast is on, is on the TST Magazine website, and I don't know whether when he said those words that this will be the year of Bindajet, he had any inkling that this was kind of, you know, in the offing or whether it, I, I'm, I'm really interested to know whether it kind of came out of nowhere for X1 or whether they'd spoken about it before. I, I know X1 have always been pretty comfortable with the likes of desktop metal coming into the binder jet space, um, kind of in, encouraging the competition and the attention it brings that, you know, mm -hmm. they're obviously, they've been going at it with that technology for, you know, a 
I don't know, nearly two decades, maybe more. I wonder whether he knew, and that's what he was referring to. I feel like I've, ju- I've just watched um, the season three finale of Succession, Laura, and <laughs> there's like a twist at the end, and then you're like, oh my God, there's a load of foreshadowing going on throughout the episodes that I want to go back and, and look at. And this is the same thing where I'm like, did he know that <laughs> they were going to be acquired by Desktop Metal? But from a Desktop Metal perspective, the done a good job of acquiring in you know within a few months of each other um the, the legacy player in binder jet and then the newcomer in meta additive mm-hmm. um and really strengthening their play in that in that field which when you think about what's left of the competition in bind, metal binder jet now is probably quite important when you think mm-hmm. of the resources that the others can tap into hpg digital metal um, it's obviously probably quite important that Desktop Metal have gone public as well to kind of compete with those guys. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting as well, because I think when, when it first happened, we were wondering whether Desktop Metal just swallow up X1. But from seeing them at Form Next, it kind of feels like that brand will keep existing. And it, you mm-hmm. know, I guess it makes sense because that name is so familiar that maybe it makes sense to keep it as its own entity. And then there was an announcement recently of Uniformity Labs and they've always had a partnership with Desktop Metal and that's now going to ex- kind of extend and expand to, to touch on X1 machines as well to qualify low porosity metal powders. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting development. One, I, I can't even remember whether I saw it coming. Maybe we did. It was just, I don't know, it was such, such a big thing mm-hmm. um, that kind of obvious but you're a bit like oh wow that's that's a big deal and i do think you're right about keeping that x1 brand alive because they've been in the industry now for for over two decades um obviously very recognizable and i remember when i interviewed john back in january and you know he was saying that there isn't an automotive supplier that isn't using sorry isn't an automotive company that isn't using its technology and we know that Desktop Metal have just had this this huge sale yeah. um, to an automotive company in Germany. I guess it really, and, and of course, they've got investment from huge automotive companies like BMW, Ford Motor Company as well. So bringing all of that together, really, but you know, having those, uh, having that established name already in the industry, knowing that these companies are already using this technology that they trust, I think it is important to really to, to, to keep that there and, and, and to bring those two things together. I guess it'll be interesting to see when you think about the product portfolio, how some of these all sit side by mm. side, because I feel like obviously Desktop Metal have kind of, you know, they've got their studio system, their shop system, their production system, and then and then you've got X1 who've been building their portfolio independently for so many years as well. What, if anything, gets discontinued? Is there confusion when a, a customer comes to Desktop Metal about which um, machine they should be investing in? I don't know if mm-hmm. they that's a slight complication and how they'll they'll work that out and maybe we'll we'll hear stuff about certain models being discontinued or whatever but um i guess that's probably the complication because i think everything else might work quite well Today's episode is sponsored by 3D Systems. Here, Sam Green, 3D Systems Professional Printer Category Manager, discusses advancements in polymer materials to increase AM repeatability, productivity, and part performance. 
know that 3D printing has been moving for some time now from a predominantly prototyping tool to a manufacturing tool. And the real end game really is for 3D printing not to replace traditional manufacturing, but to support that, adding breadth and depth and agility and complexities are where it's uh, really required. SLS is a great contender for producing uh, plastic, true plastic parts, thermoplastics in PA12, nylons. However, the drawback of many thermoplastic technologies has been the process by which these individual layers of the parts are melded together. So large thermal discrepancies can occur typically across either a single part where you display different mechanical properties at one end of the part and different mechanical properties at the other end. And the same is true if you have a batch of parts. But what we've really done, we've created the new SLS 380 3D printer. And this is designed to deliver consistent and repeatable parts. So we've installed eight individually controlled heaters. And then we've installed a high resolution IR camera that's able to take 100,000 thermal data samples from within the build chamber every second. So the system's algorithm is able to quickly identify any areas where there's high thermal gradient uh, or very low thermal gradient, and then it immediately adjusts the duty cycle of the relevant heater to remove that thermal discrepancy and ensure a more consistent sintering process. And ultimately, this uh, temperature stability creates significantly higher part yields and ultimately a more efficient process and even lower part costs. You guys have talked a lot about advancing the science and one of those areas is photopolymer resins. Can you just elaborate on how you're leveraging that to deliver production grade part performance there? We've been able to develop a series of novel patented chemistries and these have really opened the door to the first true production ready photopolymers for additive manufacturing. So we started this process for the figure four 3D printer with our tough black 20 material. This along with other production grade materials that we've released since then, all these materials are tested to demonstrate that they can retain most of their mechanical properties and typically up to eight years indoor and two years outdoor. 30 years ago, 3D Systems invented the SLA 3D printing uh, technology, uh, which uses a vector laser to scan and cure resins in a vat. In contrast to that, the figure four, it still uses a vat of course, but it replaces that laser with a projector-based imaging system that cures a whole layer at a time rather than point by point. So the great advantage of this is, of course, uh, speed. Figure four is unique in that it is a non-contact membrane technology, which means the part does not come into contact with a transparent layer at the bottom of the print tray. So the end game has always been to port over the revolutionary material advances we've made from the projector-based figure four to our SLA range, such as the Pro X800. Back in July, we launched the first of these materials. It's called the Accurate AMX Rigid Black, a high-strength uh, production-grade SLA material with really good environmentally stabilized uh, properties that can withstand years of indoor, outdoor UV and humidity exposure. It's ideal for large one-to-one scale automotive, consumer durable mounts, frames, jigs, fixtures, or internal frames in things like such as uh, white goods. But taken together, we now have a very powerful solution mix when it comes to resins. If you need small batch quantities of tens to hundreds of thousands of production grade plastic parts, the figure four is an excellent solution. And now if you need large one-to-one scale, large production parts, we now have our SLA platform with the first in our range of Acura AMX materials. To learn more about long-term resin performance and industrial scale SLS workflow solutions, visit mytct.co forward slash 3D systems pod or mytct.co forward slash pod SLS.
So we're moving into September and we finally got out to a trade show with the return of TCT 360, which was supposed to happen in June, but of course couldn't happen. But uh, we had a great event in September back at the NEC in Birmingham. It was very nice to be back um, somewhere that felt familiar and, you know, just to just to see a lot of the technologies that we had spoken about and we'd written about over the last two years, it was nice to eventually see them in person and get to speak to these companies again and speak to people we, we hadn't spoken to in such a long time, just well, except for Zoom calls and things like that. But mm. um, it was just a really nice kind of reconnection of, of, of the industry. And we did see a few product launches here as well, mainly a lot of UK debuts and from companies, as I said, that had launched things, uh, either through virtual presentations or whatever throughout the rest of the year. We had UK debuts for those products, but we did also to see um, a few product launches as well uh, from companies like WeMatter that launched a new material for its SLS 3D printing system and um, Photocentric as well who you spoke to Sam uh, I think previous to, to the show about this new um, additive manufacturing design software. Yeah so the, the software was developed in partnership with Core Technology who also had their their own booth at the show and and this is really kind of to um bolster the, the capabilities of the, of the LC Magna initially, so enabling a range of surface textures um, for that technology and some of the parts they had on the core technology stand looked really quite cool and, you know, just taking advantage of things like lasting capabilities that you see some of the other um, DL systems able to, to produce. Um, and I think it's in the kind of pipeline at a certain point to make that software available with the LC Opus, which is one of those um, products that had um, its UK debut at TCT 360. So it's mm-hmm. the companies all around the machine, the fastest system yet. Um, and its capabilities kind of include a two second layer cure speed um, and things like that. It was well received by the dental industry and, according to Photocentric, beat the pre order records of all of its previous machines. So they had a couple of new things there to to demonstrate um and yeah they're kind of another company that quietly is going about its business very well you spoke to them obviously last year with the print farm um mm-hmm. with it face shields they're they producing there yeah um so yeah they're a company doing a lot of good stuff and alongside that we also saw launches from t3dmc which we had in the last uh, magazine showcasing four new 3d scanning products and then, as I mentioned before, um, a couple of partnerships from Dimension, the DMC one, but also with Laserlands too. So they're now offering that full product and um, portfolio with Dimension with the latest generation of products. And so, yeah, so lots of things happen in TCT uh, 360 and, of course, with the conference as well. And we've, we've already published one of the conference sessions um, on the podcast. It was our Women in 3D Printing panel session. And we've got a few which are going to be coming up um, over the next year. So you'll be able to listen back to some of those uh, great talks that we had um, on the show floor. In September, this was also the month that I finally managed to put together a feature that I've talked about doing for such a long time and finally had time to do it over the summer. In fact, Sam, I think we can safely say that issue was probably both of our favourite for the year. Yeah, definitely. It was um, it was really good. And I think, I, I can't remember when I first heard you talking about this feature, but it was, I think it was maybe at an AMUG, which m- must have been two or three years ago. <laughs> um, so yeah, to finally get it done um was was really good and it was such a one a great idea for a feature but the execution of it was great as well and all of the people you interviewed for it were just had such great insight and oh, totally. shared their experiences so well um and yeah i'd encourage anyone to go and read it because it is a, 
a really good piece. Well, just because you just fed me with compliments there, Sam, um, just to note that your feature in this issue, which was the other one I was referring to, was your use of 3D scanning for um, cultural restoration mm-hmm. um, and heritage. And it's just a great, great article. You spoke to so many people about how they're using 3D technologies for this. And um, there is a link up on the website, which I'll also put in the um, in the description of this episode. Just just a, a really interesting feature and um, just nice to know kind of about the push and pull of using these technologies in, in these kinds of industries where it's obviously very sensitive material that, that, that we're dealing mm. with and yeah just super interesting so go check that out as well but this feature um, that I managed to finally put together was speaking to the original women in 3D printing so as we know women make up a small portion of our industry just 13% of the entire AM industry according to recent stats from women in 3D printing but you know we know that women have been there kind of developing and embracing this technology and adopting this technology since the beginning and one of those who it's probably one of my favorite people I've ever interviewed was was Elaine Hunt, um, who was the um, the director of the Laboratory to Advance Industrial Prototyping um, at Clemson University. And she just had the best stories to tell about, you know, early challenges with this technology and, you know, just just getting it to work and thinking back about the, the computer power that we had at the time, that the capacity to, to run these machines, and um, which at the time was um, one of the early SLS and 250 machines in, in 1989 from 3D systems and um, just trying to get this to run, you know, trying to um, just how long it used to take to um, to slice files to, to then get them to print. And she told me a story about how she had to very quickly make um, a model for, for an architectural firm who were going to, to a show that they wanted this model for. And then how um, a bit of the model had accidentally broke off. So she quickly had to print another one in time, which obviously now we think nothing of, but at the time was, was, was a major challenge. But that was all about kind of the, the brittle materials that we had at the time, how things were easily broken. And just, it's nice, it was nice to talk to Elaine because it was great to hear about the start, but it also really makes you reflect on how far we've come in this industry and, 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 and how different it is now. So I also got to speak to to one of the co-founders of Materialize, um, Hilda, who um, was so um, instrumental in the founding of this company um, on, on the business side of things and also on the healthcare side too. She's got a background um, um, in healthcare and in medical. So it was great to speak to her just about those early days of Materialize, which Sam, you managed to touch on um, last year when you had a feature on the, the 12th employee of, of Materialize who you spoke to back at TCT Japan. And we've kind of got a picture of that startup phase mm. of the company but it was so nice to get it from from Hilda's experience and to hear about the time when everyone was just kind of mucking in everybody was staying late just a really exciting time of just and and kind of what you you picture when you think of of, of tech startups that's kind yeah. of the impression that, that that she gave me and um talk, talking to Liv as well who has spoken on one of our panel sessions a few years ago at TST360 and she was one of the the early employees um at Materialize in 1996 and came on as an application engineer for medical software she's now looking after go-to market strategies and innovation programs as an innovation director but hearing about her experiences too and just the importance of software and we think about early machines but you you really needed that software power to to help run it and then speaking to another application and another engineer we spoke to Diana Kalisa at 3D Systems who applied for for a job as an engineering project manager 
um, and ended up in part of one of the biggest projects um, in uh, 3D systems at the time, which was managing the SLA 500 large format stereolithography program. So basically doubling the capacity of the machine that they had at the time, which of course comes with its own its own challenges in terms of scaling and um, for speed and for size. But she described it as the coolest technical challenge that she'd ever seen. And and then finally speaking to um, Marie Langer, who is the CEO and was, was our first um, executive interview guest on, on the Additive Insight podcast, um, CEO of, of EOS, talking about the origins of the company. She, of course, took over the company from her father, um, Hans Langer, and it's just a really great advocate for diversity, not just in terms of gender, diversity of background, of skills. I just really enjoyed this piece and getting their thoughts on how we can encourage more diversity within the industry and encourage more people to, to look at 3D printing and additive manufacturing as a career choice. It was super interesting. Um, we're getting to the end of the year now and I'm, I'm still saying it's my favourite piece. So unless something amazing happens in the next couple of weeks, this will go down as my top piece from this year. Yeah, no, it was great. And I think just on the kind of subject matter of it, I think it, it was obviously great to go back and look at... Um, the industry from uh, the kind of the female engineers perspective in the early days, but it's, it's also great now that fast forward 20, 30 years, we've got an organization like women in 3d printing mm-hmm. who are kind of encouraging a bit more, or I should say a lot more um, diversity and inclusivity. And I think as the lineup for the women in 3d printing conference is released in the next few weeks, you'll kind of see how far we've come in terms of encouraging a, a more diverse space, but then, you know, we've returned to industry events this year and you, you look around and you then get a reminder of how much more progress maybe still needs to be made. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the the piece is great and it was, you know, amazing for you to finally kind of find the time to do it, I guess. <laughs> I think same for both of us uh, for, for that issue. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, moving on to October now, and we had the long-awaited Tokyo 2020 Olympics, which finally took place and, of course, included some 3D printing because it wouldn't be a sporting event, um, particularly the Olympics, without having some kind of 3D printing in there. And even though we did see 3D printing get a bit of a bad rep uh, during this, this Olympic Games, um, it was actually used to help Team GP cycle to seven medals. So Renishaw's metal 3D printing technology was used to produce customized components for HBT bikes, which led to uh, Team GB winning seven Olympic medals, um, with Laura Kenny becoming the most successful British female Olympian of all time, and Jason Kenny becoming the most successful British Olympian ever. So pretty good news day for, for 3D printing, I would say. Um, so the technology was initially used to produce plastic and metal prototype components for testing, um, which took place to ensure all parts would, would fit, that they were with light that would draw into correct strong enough to endure the strain of the race and after this proof of concept um the ren am 500q metal am system was used to produce these parts in aluminium and titanium so things like and uh, like the handlebars and each of these were customized to the rider's specifications um, and piloted during um the opening round of the track cycling world cup series in minsk back in 2019 and then went on of course to win those medals including three gold medals Sam, what did you think of this story? It was good, especially after you, you know, you referenced the um, slight accident that one of the teams had with a three D printed handlebar. Um, it was good to, you know, hear about um, one application of the technology at the Olympics, in addition to obviously the the printed podiums that they were using, um, actually, you know, working and, and helping a a team to, you know, success and pretty big success with. Um, the achievements that Laura and Jason Kenny um, 
you know, managed to, to reach there. Um, like an insanely, insanely talented couple. Um, mm-hmm. But obviously it was all 3D printing. Um, <laughs> be thinking. Um, so yeah, it was, um, yeah, a nice story. And it kind of, I don't know, there's not an awful lot to say because the technology just worked as it probably should. Yeah. Um, and yeah, a good, a good success story for 3D printing. Also in October, we had an update from market intelligence company Context, um, who had a bit of good news for the industry, but showing signs of, uh, quote, phenomenal year-on-year growth for 3D printer shipments in the second quarter of 2021. So while this was not back to pre-COVID levels, um, it did mean that shipments grew by 61% for industrial class machines. So that's any of those costing upwards of $100,000 and by 43% for those in the design class. So that's those ranging between twenty dollars and $100,000. Now, the good news about this is that these are the two segments which were the most negatively impacted by the pandemic, because if you remember at the time, the areas of of printers which seemed to do a lot better were those that were um, desktop machines, that were the the kits that people were using to produce PPE at home to try and help out on those projects. And then also um, workers bringing desktop printers home so they could continue working, that kind of stuff. So those sectors seem to do a little bit better. While they still weren't great, they seem to do a lot better than the industrial side. So it is great to see that those areas have of course um bounced back and i guess the you know something we we're talking about um just a little while ago sam you know it, it is evidence hopefully of how we saw people adopting 3d printing during this time it does show evidence that that may be around maybe may actually be sticking around yeah i think i think chris connery in the announcement suggests um that there might there might be some kind of you know pent-up demand there that might have affected the growth, but then, I, on the other hand, it you know it could well be that um, people were so impressed with the capabilities of the technology over the last eighteen months, and and that's then had an impact. I guess we'll only be able to tell with what happens in the next couple of years whether that is a sustained kind of level of adoption or whether it does mm-hmm. you know tail off and come back down to um, a normal amount. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he does say that. Any kind of optimism does need to be tempered uh, when you're looking at um, these numbers. And he did point out the fact that the 3D printer market uh, is further clouded by the fact that individual companies have seen growth as a result of those mergers and acquisitions, which we've seen a lot of over the last few years. So you're right, Sam, it will be interesting to see what this looks like and, and, and how that changes over the next year or so. Now moving into November, which was of course form next month. I will just call it form next month because everything we did was pretty much geared towards that. Um, we'll just list just a couple of the news stories from that event, but we do have a special form next episode, which I'll put a link to in the description, which you can go back and listen to and get a roundup of all the biggest news stories from the event. But Mark Forge, who we talked about a little earlier, Sam, you spoke about their machine. Extra 3D, who showed the technology for the first time, a combination of various um, resin-based processes, which the idea is to bring in all the benefits of all of those processes together. And then AMT as well, rounding out the additive manufacturing workflow with uh, the latest generation of the post-processing equipment. So again, just a quick roundup of those news stories, but go back and listen to the Formnex episode to get um, a more in-depth look at some of those news stories. 
And here we are now in December and we've got two weeks left to go. So who knows what will happen in those two weeks. But um, for now, we're kind of catching up on the rest of our Form Nets content. Um, the biggest stories at the end of the year really have been conversations that we've had with with the likes of HP, again, from Form Next, talking about um, next year, where their metal 3D printer technology is up to, the impressive numbers now um, for, mass, uh, for mass production, how many parts they've printed. Again, I'll put a link in the description. And then also another innovator um, on Innovator episode between Scott Sevchek and Michael Hayes at Boeing on AM in Aerospace. Sam, this is another conversation that you orchestrated and was able to sit back and listen in on. And I thought there were some really frank and interesting points about the confidence in additive manufacturing within the aerospace sector. Yeah, it was, um, I spoke to Scott, maybe it was probably around the beginning of the pandemic. Um, we did an interview about the work they're doing in aerospace and he's been extra for seven or eight years, obviously just announced that he's, he's moving over to Dasso, but um, it was great that he was able to talk a bit about the work he's done on the podcast and, and also great that he managed to get Michael Hayes from Boeing on with him because Hayes is where Boeing's work with polymer 3D printing really begins. Mm-hmm. Um, as he explains on the podcast, he meets Scott Grump at an AM users group, sits him down in a presidential suite of a hotel and, and nearly 20 years on, they're still working closely together with, you know, printed parts on planes um, and by the sounds of their conversation, much more to come. Um, they touch on all sorts throughout the episode, um, early experiences of the technology, um, a couple of application examples, uh, obviously the issues around certification, that kind of thing. And there's some great stuff from the Boeing side on how much they want the technology to work and how much they don't want to kind of feed a a prejudice that maybe the technology is not mature enough and Mm -hmm. how that then slows their progress a little and how they're quite cautious you know they obviously have to be cautious anyway when you think about all the certification but just generally quite cautious because they they don't want additive to fail Mm-hmm. It is a really interesting conversation. And if you subscribe to the podcast, go have a listen. And finally, now, just a story that came out as we were recording this podcast um, was a story from Form Labs, which now has uh, printing products listed on a Vizient's Healthcare Group Purchasing Organization catalog. Sam, you reported on this one today. Yeah, so Form Labs have been, um, they've had this announcement ready to go for a couple of weeks. They've been really excited about it. Um, you know, considering it quite a, a big development for the industry. So um, GPOs, Group Purchasing Organisation Catalogues, they manage around 72% of all purchases made by hospitals and the Vizient one, um, more than half of the healthcare organisations in the US, or half of the hospitals in the US rather, uh, use Vizient's catalogue. So we did a piece earlier this year exploring 3D printing's potential as the standard of care for things mm-hmm. like surgical planning. Um, and in the conversations we had for that feature, Form Labs was one of the companies that was pushed forward as a key, key enabler of that because of the low cost of their platforms. I think the, the Form 3, for example, is available at around £3,000 and then the, the Form 2 is um, even less. And with this announcement um, today on the day we record, Hospitals in the US are now going to have even greater access to Formlabs technology and from there even greater opportunities to integrate 3D printing into their workflows. I think that's it, Sam. We've done that. Well, we said we we're going to take an hour. We've taken around two. <laughs> yeah, and multiple recording sessions. <laughs> 
So thank you so much for listening to uh, the podcast and for anyone who's listened throughout uh, the rest of this year, we really appreciate that. Um, we will, of course, um, be back in the new year with more Additive Insight, more Innovators and Innovators series, more roundtables, more panel sessions and more executive interviews. So do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, if you do want more Additive Insight, you can head on over to tstmagazine.com where you can get your free print subscription to TST Mag and sign up for our weekly newsletter, which will put the biggest 3D printing news stories from every week into your inbox. So thank you so much again for listening. Hope you have a great holiday and a happy new year. Thanks a lot. Bye.